Recent polling shows that 39% of Americans believe the election that just occurred, quote, was rigged. The best way we can show respect for the voters who were upset is by telling them the truth. I'm John Meacham. Welcome to Fate of Fact, Season 1. This series is about how and why facts became a casualty of war in the United States. How did we get here? How did fear conquer truth? When it comes to American history, John Meacham is one of the country's preeminent voices. He wrote a Pulitzer Prize-winning biography of Andrew Jackson, as well as books about Franklin Roosevelt, George H.W. Bush, John Lewis, and much else. But now he's gotten into the podcast business with a new series, Fate of Fact, about the rise of conspiracy theories on the American right. Meacham traces the roots of Donald Trump's Stop the Steal movement back to the darkest days of the Cold War, when wild conspiracy theories about a communist plot to take over the country with the active assistance of Republican President Dwight Eisenhower, no less, gained traction in the fevered swamps of the American right. It is Meacham's thesis that the current Republican Party, enamored of Trump's big lies about the 2020 election, poses a profound crisis for American democracy. Is he right? Or is he, as some might suggest, lionizing leaders of yesteryear on both sides of the political aisle who have misled or lied to the American public, feeding the conspiracy theories that alarm him? We'll discuss with Meacham himself on this episode of Skullduggery. I do solemnly swear that I will faithfully execute the office of President of the United States. I will, to the best of my ability, preserve, protect, and defend Constitution of the United States. So help me God. 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 I'm Michael Isikoff, Chief Investigative Correspondent for Yahoo News. I'm Dan Clydman, Editor-in-Chief of Yahoo News. And I'm Victoria Bassetti, a fellow at the Brennan Center for Justice. Well, I have to say this much for Meacham, our old boss at Newsweek magazine many years ago. Um, he does have impeccable timing because this podcast series is coming out just as we're watching the latest unraveling of the Republican Party, still enamored with Trump's nonsense about a stolen election, now deposing, uh, about to depose their number three leader in the House of Representatives, Liz Cheney, because she has stood up for the basic truth about what happened, i.e. Joe Biden won. And we have that lunatic Arizona recount going on. We're uh, ordered by the Arizona legislature looking for f- supposed fraudulent votes in Maricopa County, where uh, the latest reports are they are uh, scouring the ballots for signs of bamboo because of claims that somehow thousands of ballots were flown in from Asia. Uh, for Biden tipping the state uh, in his favor. And therefore, if they can find some residue of bamboo, uh, they can prove the election was indeed stolen. The... <laughs> what do you say? Yeah, what do you say you to top that? that I mean, uh, Clydman? <laughs> but I, no, I, look, I'm not even going to go there. But I will say that it is... The, the fact of the matter is the Republican Party today is divided over whether or not to accept objective truth. That's what, and by the way, there are far more people who are have, have thrown their lot in for not accepting the truth than, than those like Liz Cheney who say that that is a core principle that we need to stay faithful to. She wrote in an op-ed this week in the Washington Post, the Republican Party is at a turning point and Republicans must decide whether we are going to choose truth. Jim Jordan's, uh, you know, rejoinder is she's got to go because you can't have a Republican conference chair reciting Democratic talking points. So at the end of the day, actually repeating the fact that uh, there was a attack on the Congress, um, you know, inspired by President Trump and his lies about um, the results of the election is simply spouting Democratic talking points. So I don't know, uh, you know, where where they go from here. I don't know how you put the genie back in the bottle. Meacham is a very sage, wise person. I'm sure we'll talk to him about that. 
but um, it sure seems like uh, this isn't something that's going to happen anytime soon. And just to, to put a finer point on uh, Cheney's ouster from her leadership position is that not only is she telling the truth about what happened in the 2020 election, warning about what happened in January 6th, she's also war- warning about future violence and the future implications of where the Republican Party is going. And for all of that, the Republican Party, rather than engaging in any form of introspection or facing facts, is forging full steam ahead with not only refusing to accept the truth, but in many cases, actually manufacturing new untruths as the um, bamboo incident in Arizona um, fully demonstrates. And I, I want to kind of maybe pull back on the entire Republican Party, because obviously Liz Cheney is a member of the Republican Party. Mitt Romney is a member of the Republican Party. But it's fair to say that the biggest block of the party right now is full in on the the big lie. By far, by far. And the thing that's so kind of scary um, is that this is probably the right political choice for Republicans right now. If all they're thinking about is getting reelected and uh, taking back control of at least the House in 2022, they're probably making the right choice because this is where their voters are. Seventy percent of Republican voters do not believe that Joe Biden won the election fair and square and think that that Donald Trump should be the legitimate president right now. That, that that's Republican voters. I don't yeah, know that Republican that gets you, uh, you know, uh, a House majority in 2022. Well, if you've if you've drawn the lines carefully enough in the districts, it can. Yeah. The point is, is that their base, which is r- really what matters in uh, midterm elections, is fired up on these issues and they're not budging. Right. It, you you do one does wonder whether these Republicans who are talking like this really believe it or they simply are catering to what they think their voters want to hear. I mean, the one that's really uh, astonishing on many levels is Elise Stefanik, the uh, upstate New York Republican who seems in line to replace Liz Cheney. She was she's a Harvard educated woman who worked in the George W. Bush White House, was a uh, uh, advisor to Paul Ryan. She was in the mainstream of the Republican Party for many, many years, even during the first couple of years of the Trump. Yeah, yeah she, she, she is the personification of the establishment Republican that these people feel that they were you know, betrayed them. You know, right. she is an elitist, you know, who comes from upstate New York, whose voting record is moderate, if not liberal, on a whole host of issues. And yet she's, she's all in. in Donald. She's all, all in. in and Trump I think world. that answers your question about whether they believe it or not. Some of them do, because some of them are conspiracy theorists who are batshit crazy. But yeah. most of them are not. Most of them are opportunists. So not only is that data point that, like, I think it's upwards of maybe even 90 percent of Republican voters who believe that Joe Biden didn't win the 2020 election. But add to it another poll that came out in January where they asked people whether or not politics is about enacting good public policy or ensuring the survival of the country as we know it. 51 percent of Republicans say it's ensuring the survival of the country as we know it. There's an intensity of fear and intensity of kind of a sense that there's an existential crisis going on in the United States amongst Republican voters and feeding into that intensity and that fear rather than the facts, to go back to the uh, the podcast that, that your old boss has got coming out, is really what's driving the, the Republican Party base right now. Well, uh, and also, uh, I, we should point out that I think it's Meacham's thesis, and we're going to talk to him in a moment, that we are facing an existential crisis of American democracy right now, and it's because of what's become of the Republican Party. Um, but uh, rather than us talk about what Meacham thinks, let's hear it from him directly. So let's get to it. Okay, we've now got with us our old boss from Newsweek, John Meacham. John, welcome back to Skullduggery. Thank you, Michael. So you are a man of many talents uh, who's written many books 
and now you've gotten into the podcast business. What possessed you to want to do this and pick this particular subject? You know, I resisted podcasts for a long time because, of course, yours is the only one I love. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I did resist for a long time because um, I didn't quite understand the genre. And Chris Corcoran, who runs Cadence 13, came and and made a really good, interesting, had he, it was his idea to do 10 great speeches, uh, which we did last year called It Was Said. And that was fun because, as you know, Perhaps I overlove, you know, presidential rhetoric and and big set pieces. So that was that was fun. But this one is this is my opinion, uh, and you can take it or leave it on why it is not that we have QAnon because uh, we always have a extremist fringe, but why is it that one of the two major parties? in the United States has fallen so far away from being driven by observable reality. And I have this theory that and it goes to a moment before we all worked together, I had a, a legendary tour as the Atlanta bureau chief of the Chattanooga Times. I was, in fact, the Atlanta bureau and I ran it out of room 216 of the La Quinta Inn on I-85. But uh, for about a year and a half, I covered Georgia politics. And part of my territory was the district that is now represented by Marjorie Taylor Greene. And used to be represented, by the way, by Larry McDonald, exactly. the former president of the John Birch Society, which right. factors largely in your uh, in your podcast. Absolutely, and and that part just to and to continue kind of the representative nature of that part of the country. It was also a district and a region where Pat Buchanan did very well in 1992. But I was I was at a rally one day. I, I wish I could remember exactly where it was, but there was an evangelical Christian who had made a handmade sign that listed all these, uh, to his mind, negative social indicators on a timeline. And so murder rate, uh, alleged abortion rate, uh, crime rate, divorce rate, all rising. And you would think, quick, if, if, if you just sort of were asked, all right, what would be the point at which an evangelical Christian would, would date those things? You'd think it'd be 1973, right, with Roe versus Wade. It wasn't. It was 1962. And the school prayer decision for when the Supreme Court outlawed sectarian prayer in public schools. And it was just kind of this little epiphanic moment for me because I thought, oh, my God, that's the Pearl Harbor for the culture war. And if you spin back, you think, okay, well, 1962, Reagan was just beginning to get into national politics in 64. There was the John Birch and the Cold War and anti-communism, but this was the domestic version of that. And I started thinking about it and it cut to 2021. One of the reasons the Republican Party, I think, has embraced this fantasy and conspiracy is they don't believe that presidents from Eisenhower forward actually delivered for them, right? So they elect Eisenhower. What does Eisenhower do? He governs from the center. He builds huge infrastructure. He appoints Earl Warren to run the court. Uh, You get the Brown decisions. He, He intervenes in Little Rock. Then Nixon, 68, runs hard right and then governs in a way that the Liz Cheney treatment wouldn't even apply here. They would get rid of Nixon so fast. The EPA, uh, guaranteed family income proposal, uh, health care that was to the left of Obama, and goes to China. Ford, of course, carries that on. President Reagan comes in as the reform figure, the real figure. And what happens? You know, we all know what happens. Government went up. Uh, He cut taxes dramatically in 1981 and then raised them five times. And never pursued in a serious way, either a pro-life amendment to the Constitution or the school prayer amendment. And then, of course, George H.W. Bush is the embodiment of this, right? 
he says stuff on the campaign trail he didn't really mean. He didn't think they were going to take it very seriously. And of course, he gets clobbered for it. And George W. Bush, if he were here, would say that there's a straight line between TARP and Trump. And so I don't think anybody in 2016 or 2020 went into the ballot box and said, you know what, Eisenhower screwed me, so I'm voting for Trump. You know, even I don't think that. <laughs> but I do think it's an elemental drama that 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 if you look at the more establishment figures and, you know, Representative Cheney is, is the latest in the barrel, but Jeb Bush or, you know, Kasich, those folks, you know, they rep Romney, McCain, they represented a system that not just the extreme, but the mainstream of that party believed was taking advantage of. So, so John, um, you know, we've talked a lot about uh, the assault on truth uh, on this podcast, conspiracy theories, QAnon. We also, in that context, talk a lot about the internet, um, about uh, filter bubbles and algorithms and uh, all of the things that supercharged uh, this um, flight from fact, um, as, as you call it. Your take is historical, that it goes way back in our p- politics, in our culture, but you chose to start it the long march uh, toward where we are now at Yalta. Yeah. The presence of a State Department official at Yalta named Alger Hiss. So tell us um, why Yalta is the uh, starting point of this story, why you decided to, to begin there. And I realize that it's the, the self parody of my beginning anything at Yalta. <laughs> I, I acknowledge, and I want to I want to commend both of you for your restraint and grace to your guest for not saying. And of course, yes, I started it. Yeah. Uh, so thank you. Stay tuned. Yalta Stay tuned. Was, <laughs> Yalta was in a way an early big lie. It was a summit. FDR was sick, but. Like most presidents, he couldn't imagine a world where he was not in it and in charge of it. Stalin did very well at that summit. But FDR thought, you know what, I've got plenty of time. I'll fix this. Alger Hiss, as you say, the Ivy League educated Soviet asset, uh, later revealed by uh, exposed by, by Richard Nixon, who was a young congressman at the time, was there. And so the idea that the country was stabbed in the back uh, at Yalta was an animating uh, drama on the right in the late 1940s. It helped, as Mike was saying, it helped feed this John Birch Society narrative that it wasn't that the communists were our foes. It was also agents within the highest levels, at the highest levels of government. Truman, FDR, Eisenhower, George Marshall, for God's sake, were not just dupes, but they were active agents. And so you you head into the late 40s, sort of hurtling toward Joe McCarthy with this sense that the Democratic Party, which had had control of just about everything in American life for 20 years, since 1932, 33, uh, huge majorities in the Congress, 20 years of White House rule, right? Almost impossible to imagine uh, now. And the fear was, if you let the Democrats be in charge, they're going to sell us out. And look, there was Alger Hiss, a translator there, the Soviet asset at FDR side. And so it, it was just a perfect narrative for this. And you know, one of the things about McCarthy is McCarthy wasn't wrong. He was just late. Uh, I mean, he was wrong on the details, but but there was, you know, there was penetration of the government. And Truman actually angered a lot of civil libertarians by running a loyalty program. One of the reasons Truman was so irritated by McCarthy is he'd taken a political beating, but had done the work and had had, you know, attempted to keep keep those folks out, get those folks out. So you have this very potent brew of anti-communism and democratic hegemony and elitists, you know, the Harvards and the professors were all working against common American interests. Any of this sound familiar? Mm -hmm. 
you know, one of the one of the interesting uh, moments in your podcast comes to me when Evan Thomas says something that conservatives were not wrong to think that they were stabbed in the back by their leaders. And, and you, you point this out, that many of the conservative leaders who you mention to kind of don't fulfill some of their promises about school prayer, about, let's say, abortion rights, about a variety of the conspiracies and concerns that their constituents and that their their base have. I guess the question is, you know, whether or not that's still true. In other words, has the leadership of the Republican Party stopped stabbing their membership uh, in the back? Has there now been a kind of a confluence between these angry minds and angry leaders? And is that the big difference today? That, that's a, a great and, and subtle question and, and more precise than, than I was speaking. And so thank you. Um the answer is yes, but uh, yes, there is more confluence than ever, and that is different. And the folks who do seem to risk running against orthodoxy are being punished, right? As we're speaking, right? Liz Cheney, who believes the truth, is not triumphant, but in fact being driven away. And so that means that. The House Republican Caucus, that means that Kevin McCarthy, and let's be honest, members of the House of Representatives are much more often mirrors of what their constituents want than they are makers or leaders of that opinion. And so I think these folks are look, you know, their their consultants, the RNCC, all the political people are walking in and showing them numbers that don't just show that people in their districts and states support Trump. It's it's the adverb. It's the strongly support line of the poll that is so different. This number is a little out of date, but I remember talking to a statewide office holder in Tennessee who, this was about 17 or 18, who said that nobody, you see, what you don't understand is it's not just that they're for it, that for the guy, it's that they're in this other category, that they are passionately for it. And so they they follow they follow that opinion, and so yes, I mean I you know the, the point of the conversation is is not to say you know oh there's this conspiracy element there's always a conspiracy element the issue to go to your good question is the conspiracy element is now pretty much the governing force behind it behind the whole party. So as constituted and currently run, the party has fallen off the political mainstream, a field that for a long time was, I think, defined by a kind of figurative conversation between FDR and LBJ at one yard line and Reagan and George W. Bush at the other, and everybody governed on that field. John, what do you attribute that to? that mainstreaming of conspiracy theories um disappointment that they fought that you know they they write their checks they vote they 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 organize they invest in these candidates and they don't get what they pay for and so basically part of it and this is an overly simplistic way of putting it but i think this is a significant i think this is has the virtue of being true I think a lot of folks thought, you know, if Republicans are going to treat us as if we're, you know, that it's a reality show, we're just going to send them, we're going to send them a reality show. And I think part of the ethos is the establishment says one thing and does another. Donald Trump, whatever you want to say about him, just doesn't, right? And yes, he lies, but it, but he, on the core things that connect him to that base, he's going to do what they want. And the establishment is not and hasn't. And I think a lot of it has to do with the size and scope of government. I mean, and, and that's part of the hypocrisy of this, which is, you know, you're always against executive power and spending federal money unless you're in charge of it. And so the government keeps growing. The country keeps changing. They don't get these central claims. And so they have decided 
we're going to send a brawler because when we send, you know, button down people, they all seem to go native. So, John, let me uh, let me challenge you a bit because Please. it's me. Um, uh, your, your premise is we've arrived at a moment that's really an existential crisis for American democracy. That's. Perhaps. I don't think I'm alone in that, Michael. Yeah, no, you're not on that on that <laughs> point. Uh, but that's epitomized by the big lie of the election. But I think one critique might be that you do tend to lionize, perhaps, American establishment of figures of yesteryear. In the first episode, you sort of start out with Lyndon Johnson and the Great Society, yet. You know, those of us old enough to remember that it was Lyndon Johnson who perpetuated what by today's political rhetoric would be called the big lie, uh, multiple big lies about the Vietnam War. You know, the Gulf of Tonkin, we're winning the war, light at the end of the tunnel, all that. It struck me that in, in the, you have an ad for your podcast uh, for Daniel Ellsberg, who you know blew the whistle on the big lies of the Vietnam era. You talked a moment ago about Liz Cheney, who was a part of her father's administration that perpetuated by today's rhetoric would be the big lie of the Iraq war and um, uh, all the mistruths that were told by an American president, vice president, and administration about al-Qaeda ties to Saddam Hussein and all the other things that got us into the war. So I, I just, one could argue that those, and I'm using the word lie only because it's become so current in our political dialogue today, were, you know, far more costly, certainly in terms of American lives, than the patent mistruths, untruths of, of, of Donald Trump. So are we guilty of something that I think is sometimes called presentism by historians thinking that the moment we're in today is absolutely the worst that it's ever been and we've never seen anything like this before, forgetting all the ways American leaders who you respect have told us lies in the past? Uh, no. Uh, <laughs> okay. <laughs> All right, move on. Next, no, question. next question. Next question. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I could go on. Can I jump in and just ask for a kind of a clarification, which is yeah. Mike uses the phrase big lie a lot versus... Oh, only because that's become sort of standard political hashtag. rhetoric. But Mike, and I, I would argue that that which was said to the American public during the Vietnam era and the Iraq war era were as egregious as many of that which is being said today. Well, right. But I, the thing I want to ask for clarification from our guest on not to not to have just a fight between me and Mike is that the idea of a big lie is not just that it's a lie that's big. It's that it is a lie that goes to the heart of our democratic or constitutional governance structure versus a lie that happens Why, that be, gets us into wars that kills thousands of Americans? That strikes me as pretty serious. But let's hear Meacham yeah. on this. <laughs> right. Look, I'm not grading on a curve here. Uh, and that's, that's, that's the implication of the, the presentism. The difference is that Trump's narrative, his lie about the stolen election, un undoes the constitutional structure that allows for us, for you, under the First Amendment, to raise those questions about everything else. That 60% of the Republican Party, which is 40% of the voting public, that they believe that Joe Biden somehow stole the election and that he is not a legitimate president, and that they were willing to do something that didn't even happen in 1861, which was to breach the Capitol which the Confederate Army never did, takes the checks and balances away, and it becomes an autocracy. There have been innumerable leaders, you've named several, and I would argue that American presidents from Washington to LBJ, or at least Washington to Eisenhower, were part of what is unquestionably a big lie about white supremacy. Every one of them, right? But Frederick Douglass, when William Lloyd Garrison physically burned a constitution 
1854 saying it was a pact with the devil and we had and, and the only way to fix America was to do away with it. Douglas said no, that the uh, there's no soil more conducive to the growth of reform than American soil. So when I say existential, I mean existential, that Donald Trump, if he had his way, would turn this into an autocratic country. And then we have no means by which to call Lyndon Johnson and Richard Nixon and Henry Kissinger on the lies about Vietnam. We have no way to check and balance intelligence and, and, and justifications for war uh, with Bush and Cheney. We have no way to conduct a republic that is far from perfect, to say the least, but so far has been better than anything else that has been proposed or, or that is ra could rationally be implemented. So I'm not grading on a curve. I don't think that this is the worst it's ever been. It was worse in 1861 to 65. But that's about it. Well, I think the, the, the divisions during the 60s, during the Vietnam War, were pretty sharp and serious. Sure. And but it you never, had but it never weathermen occurred. setting off bombs, you know. Okay, because... Michael, but it, but it never occurred to Her, Hubert Humphrey or Richard Nixon. I mean, they manipulate. I mean, Nixon manipulated the 1968 election, you know, mm -hmm. with the North Vietnamese and, and I mean, unquestionably. Right. But nobody said, Hubert Humphrey didn't say, you know what? He stole the election and I want everybody to meet and charge the Capitol and take our country back. I Look, I, we could spend the next six weeks talking about moments that were like this. I wrote a book about it. But what is different was an attempt to smash the infrastructure of democracy. Let me ask uh, John about another president who has uh, loomed over our politics uh, for a couple of generations. I felt like he was such a presence sometimes at Newsweek. I felt like he was wandering the halls of 57th Street, and that was Ronald Reagan. Yeah. <laughs> I, I wonder where he falls on this continuum because – you know, you think back about that period and you think about acid rain wasn't real. Um, creationism should be taught alongside uh, evolution. The, the anti-regulatory zeal with which you could argue was in some ways the roots of the anti-science zeal uh, of the current Republican Party. The refusal to deal with AIDS. Refusal to deal with AIDS uh, until uh, Rock Hudson. So where do you place uh, Ronald Reagan in that? in that continuum? It's a great question. And it, it actually links what, what Mike was saying too. So part of the counterintuitive and perhaps to some, it'll be unconvincing. Part of my argument about Reagan is that the man who confused carbon monoxide and carbon dioxide, uh, when he said the trees caused pollution, <laughs> uh, a man who believed that Armageddon was at hand, Colin Powell used to say, here come the little green men again, <laughs> who confused scenes that he had been in in movies and had seen in movies with reality, was in fact a figure who gave form and structure to an American dialectic that is superior to the one we're in now, that Reagan made stuff up, but he was taken all in all to go to Mike's sort of the human side of presentism, which is not to overly lionize, but, you know, what I think the key to biography and to citizenship in some, to some extent is not to look up adoringly or look down on them condescendingly, but try to look folks in the eye. And I think when you look Reagan in the eye, you see somebody who wanted a different proportion of the state and the marketplace, who wanted a different kind of projection of force against a commonly agreed upon foe and rival, and was a sequential figure to the forces of progressivism, conservatism, reform, reaction, 
that had shaped the country for 200 years. So Reagan right now, because of his views on immigration and his views on trade, could not be nominated by the Republican Party, right? So that's where, that's how dissociated from the past. Now, I'm not saying that this past is the best. This goes to Isikoff's point. Again, not grading on a curve, but history isn't about the perfect. It's about assessing what was practically possible given the human limitations of a given era. So I, I think Reagan ultimately is kind of good news in this. And I know this is not a popular view, but he represented a coherent philosophy. And to some extent, kind of like Lincoln, he managed to make his vices into virtues, whether consciously or not. So he was a dreamer. He, he, he saw this, this sort of gauzy world, but he wanted to get to that gauzy world. And part of the gauzy world was ending communism. And so he took a lot of heat on the right for his relationship with Gorbachev. The enduring nature of presidents that we tend to look back and say, that was a good thing. And what can we learn from it? Often comes when presidents surprise us and surprise their base. So Kennedy and Johnson on civil rights, Nixon on China, Reagan and the Soviets, Bush and TARP, right? So you have these moments where they have to, if, if they're going to govern, they have to spend that political capital. And it's hard. And it helps and it, it, it sets up the dynamic we're talking about because Republicans have tended to the Republican presidents have tended to do this. I don't you know, I'm, I'm thinking right now about sort of all right, so what, what are all the lessons of this? Right. What's the road back? And I think the question I just asked myself is actually not quite right, because you don't really want a road back to the politics and the governance that gives you the examples you were you were just listing. What you do want is improvement, right? So you want a road ahead. And the test for Americans from generation to generation has been, can we more fully apply and live up to the implications of the creed of human equality and being able to give people what Lincoln said was an open field and a fair chance. And, you know, from Seneca Falls to Selma to Stonewall, we are better when we are more inclusive. And we have to find a way to integrate that sensibility more fully into a politics that at the moment, for a huge chunk of the country, but not a majority of the country, a huge chunk of the country is more interested in the Dr. Seuss, you know, owning the libs, the kind of political entertainment industrial complex, as opposed to thinking about what's actually going to make the republic stronger. So, so John, are you, you're suggesting that that's the first step uh, to redemption here is that we is is that if we find that more inclusive politics, then we can deal with the the crisis of facts and and uh, alternative realities. Is, is that what you're saying? Or I think that American politics has to begin with the question of, all right, what's the point of this? Is the point the acquisition and maintenance of power for power's sake? And that's where the current Republican Party is, right? And I'm not lionizing the Democrats, but at least they have something they want to do with the power, right? And one of the, I've been asked, you know, well, what about the other side? You know, they don't, they, you know, they're extreme too. Not, not as much, actually. The Sanders AOC critique of American life is like Reagan's. It is within the American tradition. 
They've they've looked at facts. They've assessed it. They believe that more public investment is the thing to do. Okay, let me break in here because that was going to be another point I wanted to raise with you. I, I, you know, we've spent a lot of time on this podcast talking about conspiracy theories, and there's no question that you know the 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 Trump era has brought us a golden age of conspiracy theories and conspiratorial thinking about American politics. You present this in the podcast as sort of uniquely a feature of the American right, and you trace it back to McCarthy era and Robert Welsh and John Birch Society and all that. But, but, (laughs) you know, do you know when the, the, the term conspiracy theory first entered the vernacular in American politics? It was after the Kennedy assassination, you know, Mark Lane from, from Mark Lane to Oliver Stone, the CIA worked with the mafia to kill Kennedy, Mm -hmm. um, go on to, you know, the King assassination, the Bobby Kennedy assassination. It was all sort of fevered thinking about dark conspiratorial forces within the American government. Manufacturing Consent, the book by Noam Chomsky, co-authored by Noam Chomsky, which held that you, me, and Clydeman were all part of a corporate media that was basically assigned the job of furthering propaganda to uh, promote the goals of the American state. These are all conspiracy theories of the left that gained wide traction in recent decades decades. Um, and, you know, I think suggests that this is not sort of unique to one fringe of the American political spectrum. I would argue, by the way, that the Kennedy assassination as a conspiracy theory probably rates higher in polls as something the American public believes in than anything that Donald Trump has said. So how would you respond to you've looked in a somewhat skewered way at conspiracy thinking? Well, Mark Lane didn't lead an assault on the Warren Commission, did he? No, not did. No, listen, I, I'm not I'm not saying they are all the same. And certainly the assault on the Capitol January 6th was like, you know, a horrible moment in American history for which we do not really have a precedent. You know, granted that. I'm talking about your analysis of conspiracy thinking. And the fact that this is uniquely of the American right. Well, here, what I'm actually arguing is that the conspiracy thinking on the right is is more deeply held and is, has had a more discernible impact on the way the rest of us live. It was a right wing conspiracism that led to a fundamental physical attack on the United States Capitol and has led to an epistemological attack on numbers and reality itself. And there is not an equivalent at the moment. There could be by this afternoon, but there's not right now an equivalent on the left. And I decline to be drawn into a fake, reflexive, both sides. Both sidesism, something yeah. we are often accused of on this podcast. I decline to do it because I don't think it's fact-based. I mean, the Kennedy example is really interesting. It's also part of a broad, you know, a growing deficit of trust. To go to a, an earlier question of yours, the Kennedy assassination, Vietnam, Watergate, you know, these, you know, with, with stagnating wages, you know, that, that has taken trust in government from 77% in 1964 to 17% today. So that's not entirely a conservative thing. But what you know, Democrats and the left have confronted this crisis of trust and the responsiveness of our public institutions to the needs of its people, and they elected Joe Biden. The right stormed the Capitol. That's why this podcast is the way it is. Also not to engage in both sidesism, but I think a lot of people would point over the course of the last four years to the Democratic Party and the less obsession with Russia, with Russian interference in the 2016 election, with the deployment of the Mueller investigation as a sort of left or Democrat equivalent of uh, Donald Trump's big lie about the 2020 election. Now, 
I think there's a, a pretty big difference, but there are a fair number of people, both in media circles and in, certainly in kind of the Republican Party, who believe that what's going on today is really no different than what happened in 2017 and 2018 with the kind of relentless investigations of Trump's ties to Russia, arguments that Russia had, you know, kind of fudged the 2016 election and the Mueller investigation. Do you, do you think they've got a point? No, I think they're wrong <laughs> because, of- because it's not because it's not true. It, 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 I mean, again, there's a difference between neutrality and fair mindedness. And I think a fair minded person would look at that and share on the surface. Sure. I, I, but to investigate, as the, the government did, potential connections to a foreign power and to adjudicate that is the way a system of checks and balances is supposed to work. To invent a fictional narrative in the face of litigation, mathematics, and common sense is not the same thing. Also, it it is a fact that the Russian government did hack. Yeah, that's the other the, thing. It's, not, yeah. it's just not true. And yeah. I and I'm not and I again I'm not a Democrat, right? I, but I do think that to whom much is given, much is expected. I have been very lucky in my life to be a citizen of this country, to be educated in the way I was, to, and I feel that this is what I believe. I am going to say it, hopefully in a way that illuminates as opposed to agitates, but it's not really my concern, honestly, whether somebody's feelings are hurt by it. And in fact, I think it's interesting that the right which for so many years has culturally made fun of a culture of victimhood and grievance is now fully embraced a narrative that they are victims and aggrieved. And so I don't, I don't think this is imbalanced. This is my opinion. All I can say again is that you did not, you know, Democrats confronted reality and elected Joe Biden. Republicans confronted reality and attacked the Capitol. Well, a lot of Republicans voted for Joe Biden, and that's one of the reasons he won, because they could not go along with Trump's lies. Because I think it's important before we let John go um, to talk a little more about where we go from here, because, you know, arguably, you know, this is the biggest challenge that this country is facing right now. Um, And it it kind of infects everything. in our politics. Um, And I want to ask about Liz Cheney, because it feels like we are at some maybe small inflection point uh, with her. She next week uh, is almost certainly going to be thrown out of Republican leadership. She may be reelected, although she is going to be uh, certainly primaried. I guess the question is, um, is this going to render her effectively irrelevant? Or do you think she has some strategy, some ability to help restore uh, the GOP to some fact-based reality or to be a part of that? Is there a path forward uh, that you think she may be thinking about and that is animating her moves here? You know, I don't know. Uh, One sign that God has a sense of humor is that the American left is, you know, loves Liz Cheney. Uh, Well, you know, the great irony here, John, is that uh, Andrew Romano, um, our former colleague who works for us, just did a nice uh, profile of uh, of Elise Stefanik, uh, who is uh, likely to be uh, replaced Liz Cheney. I mean, her voting record. Oh, it's like half what Liz's is, right? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you know, she was. She voted against Trump's tax cuts. She voted against his signature achievement. Well, I think because it's about loyalty. A, I don't know. And B, I don't think she knows because I don't think it's knowable to use the old. It's a known unknown about Mm -hmm. whether the Republican Party, as constituted and run at this hour, can long endure in a demographically changing country. So we are not a 60-40 country. We are a 52, 48, 51, 49 country. Biden's percentage of the popular vote was higher than Truman's, higher than Kennedy's, higher than Nixon's in 68, you know, in line with with Carter Bush, more than Bush in 2000, obviously. 
So one important part of this conversation is we're is we're not talking about that there's going to be some moment where 80% of the country is going to agree on anything. The most we ever had was in 1776 when it was about 80-20 to rebel uh, among white colonists. And ever since then, it's, it's gradually collapsed uh, into, into a closer thing. I honestly don't see how the durability, I'm talking about 10 years here, I don't quite see a generational durability to a white grievance, culturally populist party. A, populism is hard to sustain. Trump, I think, will run in 2024. My own bet is that Biden runs too. And you want to talk about a defining moment for the country, you know, that's it. I, I And I don't know what, what obviously what, what Representative Cheney is thinking, but she is now in a position, if in fact there's a defeat and maybe, you know, another couple of defeats to be a figure who could say, we have a policy agenda. We have something to offer the country that is not simply this personality who happens to have some adjacent policy views that appeal to, to folks. But what I just said over the last 20 seconds assumes a reality-based Republican Party, a rational weighing of pluses and minuses. And how do we get there? I think you just, I, I think my only view, my only idea is that conservatives are supposed to like history, right? They're supposed to think that we are conserving something, right? <laughs> right? That's the point. So my little soapbox on the corner is America has been at its best when it has acted within a constitutional system where if you lose, you get together and you try to win the next time which is what, by the way, Andrew Jackson did. He lost in 1824, and he created a great hashtag, corrupt bargain, but he didn't storm the Capitol. He came back to Tennessee and ran again. That's, you know, to me, a devotion to that flawed, terribly flawed document is the beginning of wisdom because I don't see the alternative. Well, um, one way Republicans could get back to an appreciation of history is to listen to Fate of Fact. Um, that was very uh, elegant. So, yeah. Uh, <laughs> how many uh, episodes? I've listened to two. Uh, it's going to be five. It's going to be five. And I'm going to I'm still I'm writing the last one and I'm going to I'm going to quote you, Michael. <laughs> uh, all right. I will be uh, listening eagerly. And the other Meacham podcasts are worth listening to. The speeches one I loved. My favorite episode, because it's one of my favorite speeches, is RFK in Indianapolis the night Martin Luther King was assassinated on the flatbed truck. So uh, people ought to definitely check that out as well. John, thanks for joining us. Thank you, gentlemen. Thank you, gentlemen.